those of us in radio and television, the thought of doing a whole show about silence and not talking, what a nightmare. <laughs> we don't want dead air, do we? No. <laughs> <laughs> but in today's Taiwan Insider, we're going to take you to the world's first urban quiet park right here in Taipei. I'm Natalie So. And I'm Andrew Ryan. Let's start off with a look at the stories on our radar. On Saturday, people in the southern city of Kaohsiung voted to recall their mayor. KMT politician Han Guoyu won the race for mayor in 2018, but the city soured on him when he took time off to run for president. At Han's urging, many supporters stayed away from the polls, hoping that low turnout would make the vote fail to meet the required threshold. The vote passed anyway, with 97.4% in favor of Han's ouster. The cabinet will now appoint a temporary mayor until a by-election can be held in September. The head of Ilan County has invited President Tsai to land on the Diaoyutai Islands and plant a sign declaring them part of the county. That's as a Japanese city that also claims the islands prepares to vote on changing their official Japanese name. Tsai has reiterated Taiwan's sovereignty over the islands and called for a peaceful resolution of the dispute. One of Taiwan's biggest religious events is back on again. The annual Dajia Mazu pilgrimage through central Taiwan set off on Thursday. But the number of participants has been sharply reduced due to concerns about COVID-19, and everyone has to wear surgical masks. Domestic airlines are seeing a surge in demand in the run-up to summer. That's with COVID-19 keeping international travel off the table. There's been a particular surge in interest in Taiwan's outlying islands, prompting domestic carriers to add tens of thousands of seats on popular routes. And under the radar this week, Hualien's Yuli Township is offering visitors a new way to enjoy its beauty by creating images in its fields, such as of Taiwan and a bear paw, as the rice fields near their harvest time. And now for our words of the week. Ready to guess, Andrew? Yes. Happy. <laughs> <laughs> Happy today? Uh, cars. <laughs> Casual. Calm. Calm. <laughs> I like it. Calm down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hard for me. <laughs> so we'll be talking about our first urban quiet park in the world, and it's a great place to calm the mind and the heart. Love it. That's a fantastic word. I'm just yes. going to stare at that for the rest of the show. <laughs> Ready for my word? Yes. All right. Wow, very, that's a long one. I use a very small font because I have a, a lot of um, letters. Continuous, contemporary, contemptuous? No. Contemptuous. Con con <laughs> contemplative. Contemplation. Contemplation. These two go together. They do. Two C words that have to do with the world's first urban quiet park. Now, some people are saying, you know, are we avoiding all of the bad news when we go out into the quiet of the park? Actually, no, those parks, those silent parks, they offer us room for contemplation so we can come back with a clear mind. Great. Let's put these on the shelf. Last Saturday, voters in Kaohsiung did something that's never been done before in Taiwan. They recalled their mayor. Now, Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu is one of the biggest stars in the KMT. He's also the first KMT mayor in Kaohsiung in 20 years. But last weekend, just a year and a half into his term, he's out of a job. Now, why did the people turn against him? Well, I spoke with Fulbright scholar Lev Nachman, who's in Taiwan studying Taiwan politics, to get some insight. There's a few different reasons. Uh, the one that a lot of um, media is talking about is Han's connections with China. 
uh, and how uh, kind of the China factor has really turned people against him. And, and that's true to an extent, uh, but that's not nearly as big of a factor, in my opinion, as Han himself as a politician, uh, how much he has blundered, disappointed, failed to really enact any sort of good governance in Kaohsiung uh, since he became elected. He himself was not able to actually fulfill any of the promises he made as mayor. Uh, he infamously took four months off from being mayor to run for president. Right, that was the, one of the main, you know, issues. Main grievances that, were, that people right. had. Uh, and, and, and then, of course, it's no secret that his, most of his economic plans were to increase trade with China. Uh, his meeting uh, in Hong Kong with PRC officials last year uh, made this incredibly obvious. And even though Han Guoyu himself has said that he rejects one country, two systems, supports the Hong Kong protesters, uh, by him going to Hong Kong, meeting with Carrie Lam, meeting with PRC officials, it really sends mixed messages. The other really important factor behind uh, the recall vote, though, and this cannot be overstated, is how much the organization We Care, that's, that's the name of the organization, mobilized so much of the city. Uh, they have been campaigning ever since Han Guoyu was, began to run for president, uh, the city of Kaohsiung to, to, to express their uh, discontent with him. So do you think he still has um, a certain appeal among a certain population of KMT supporters? Uh, I think he did. The big question is, what does the average voter look like after COVID? Because a lot of people who before would never say something nice about Tsai Ing-wen suddenly mm. have a lot of nice things to say about Tsai Ing-wen. Right. Uh, good governance does a lot for a politician's reputation. Uh, and a lot of moderate to light blue voters who might not enthusiastically support Tsai Ing-wen before might be a little bit more inclined uh, to vote for someone like her in the future. Now, whether or not that's going to translate into voting for the DBP in the future, we'll see. Unfortunately, the next election is still two years away. And, you know, in Taiwanese politics times, that's a lifetime. <laughs> so who knows what's going to possibly happen between now and then. But uh, I, I think... Uh, there, there is definitely, at this very moment now, a bit of a shift into public support for DPP versus KMT. When you were in Kaohsiung, what was the mood there? Very happy. Very happy. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was, I mean, it, it was very moving. I mean, considering in today's world, so many democracies seem so dysfunctional uh, that Kaohsiung, Taiwan, of all places, to be the one place where people turn up to vote and uh, proper democratic transition happens, that's not contested. Um, I hope Taiwan can be a new trendsetter. Once again, that was Fulbright scholar Lev Nachman. He is also a PhD candidate at UC Irvine. His specialty is Taiwan's small parties. Now, if you'd like to see the full interview, it's available on Facebook and YouTube. While most of the people of Taiwan were focused on a noisy recall in Kaohsiung last weekend, there was another group of people on a mountain in Taipei celebrating the silence. Last Friday on World Environment Day, Quiet Parks International designated Yamishan National Park, which is right here in Taipei's backyard, as the world's first urban quiet park. So what's so great about silence and quiet? I'm going to let my friend Matt Mickelson from Quiet Parks International explain it to you himself. 
natural quiet or the ability to listen to nature without noise pollution is becoming harder and harder. The vast majority of people living in the world today are exposed to unhealthy quantities of noise pollution. There are very, very few places left on planet Earth where you can listen to just the sounds of nature for more than 15 minutes at a time. And those places are vanishing very quickly. Quiet Parks International is the first and only organization committed to the preservation of quiet for the benefit of all living beings. Being able to listen to nature without the impacts of noise pollution connects us to the world as it was. Natural quiet is a resource that's really important for all humans, but also for wildlife. It's really important that wildlife have acoustically pristine environments that they can communicate in. Our hope is that we can create a few places in every country that people can go to experience natural quiet. We hope to not only help the local communities preserve these places and to help mitigate sources of noise pollution, but also to draw tourism to these areas to experience the quiet. Quiet is a resource, and if we don't do something to protect it now, it'll be much harder in the future to regain what we've lost. Andrew, I think every city needs an urban quiet park. Absolutely. Um, we all need a place to calm our hearts and minds. So I heard there's a lot of cities around the world that are planning urban quiet parks. Why was Yamingsan the first? That's a great question. And I think for the answer, we should turn to the co-founder of Quiet Parks International, who's this guy called Gordon Hempton. And he's a world-renowned recorder of natural sounds. He actually came to Taiwan in 2018. He went up to Yamingsan. He even brought us around to, to listen to the sounds that he heard. Uh, and here's what he had to say about Taiwan becoming the location of the world's first urban quiet park. The reason why the world's first urban quiet park is in Taiwan. Why not uh, New York, London, Paris, Stockholm, and other places that have expressed an interest in this? And the answer to that is the, the fast response and quick recognition of the fundamental value of what silence offers and offers in the way of creativity, clarity, and knowing what the future should hold. So thank you very much for this, um, this great honor to be the, uh, the sponsoring a nonprofit organization of this quiet park. And we look forward to uh, 50 more or uh, even greater urban quiet parks within the next decade, but it all starts here. Congratulations. So Andrew, last Friday on World Environment Day, you got to go on a silent trail? That's right. Uh, they brought us up onto this trail in Yamishan, and it was an eye-opening, and I should say maybe ear-opening experience. But rather than explain it to you, uh, I actually went and shot some video. So right. I'm going to allow you to see it and hear it for yourself. 
There's a one and a half kilometer hike ahead of us up this mountain. This is Leila Fan, the founder of the Soundscape Association of Taiwan and a tireless advocate for silence in nature. Today, she's bringing us along a silent trail in the world's first urban quiet park, Yamishan National Park, right here in Taipei's backyard. Our destination is Monghuan Pond. They got the name Monghuan, or dreamy, because of the beautiful mists that often enshroud the area. Along this silent path, you'll see signs encouraging people to remain quiet. It's not just to offer a meditative listening experience for the humans. It's good for the birds and the animals, too. This is a quote by sound tracker Gordon Hempton. Silence is the think tank of the soul. As we venture silently up the path, the encumberments of the city slowly fall away, and we begin to hear the sounds of nature. And the views from the path are stunning, too, like this volcanic mountain, which hints at Yamishan's dramatic origins. When we arrive at Monghuan Pond, I ask Leila Fan about the significance of Yamishan becoming the world's first urban quiet park. Taiwan and what kind of sounds do we hear up at Monghuan Pond? Yamishan National Park is the world's first urban quiet park, and Quiet Parks International is hoping that it's the first of 50 such parks in the next decade. In this week's Taiwan by Number, I'm going to be testing Natalie and Andrew to see how much they know about Yangmingshan National Park. Do you guys know anything about Yangmingshan National Park? Mm, you were just there last weekend. Yes, I know a little. <laughs> Pressure's on, Andrew. I don't know any numbers. Let's just put it that way. All right. Let's start off with something a little more basic. Let's start off with some history, all right? So first question is, when and what year did Yangmingshan National Park, as we know it today, become established? Ooh. What year? 1950. 1963. Okay, those are two very good answers. Let's have a look at the real answer, though. 
1985. That seems very late, right? However, I do have to say that that was when the new administration uh, took it over and reestablished it as a national park, the park we know it today. Uh, during Japanese colonial time, uh, the Japanese administration actually had uh, Yangmingshan National Park, except that back then it was called Da Tuen National Park. Da Tuen National Park, yeah. that's the name of the, one of the mountains. Yes, it's yeah. very different. Uh, if you take a look at the map over here, this is the original uh, Japanese National Park. And if you'll see, actually, Seven Star Mountain, Qixingsan, on the top right, that's the highest peak of Yangmingshan right now, was not included in the original National Park. Wow. What in the original national park they actually had Guaningshan, which is over closer to Tansui. Oh, on the other side of the river. That's right. It looks like it almost comes all the way to RTI. It almost <laughs> does, right? It, you, you, it almost does. All right. So inside Yangmingshan, there's something called the Da Twin Volcano Group, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a bunch of volcanoes wow. within Yangmingshan. I didn't know that. According to national park authorities, how many volcanoes are there in inside Yangmingshan National Park? Oh my goodness. How about eight? Wow, that was a quick and Lucky decisive number. answer. Um, <laughs> I'll say, I don't know, uh, 88? Is that too much? <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a look at the answer right here. 20, 20, plus. 20 plus. And oh, actually, yeah. that number is uh, kind of disputed because 20 only includes the volcanoes that you can really discern from the outside. Using laser guided technology, some experts say there are as many as 51 volcanoes wow. within Yangmingshan National active, Park. Though? Yeah, they're not active, are they? Uh, there's, that's actually disputed. Actually, a few Oof. news stories came out last year saying that they might still be active. There's still like a pulse that they can detect, and there are lava deposits underneath. Oh, Leslie, don't tell us that. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm sorry. It I'm is sorry. interesting. It's very interesting, but it's like one more thing to add to my nightmares. I so. mean, if you look at the picture that we just showed you, uh, they had Xiaoyokun, and that was kind of like a sulfur vent, uh -huh. right? And that's actually very indicative of just how much seismic activity and volcanic activity is. Really? There's some steam and smoke coming yeah. out of it. it yeah. That's what it is. All right, guys. Last question: Do you guys know how many uh, hiking trails there are in uh, national in the Yangmingshan National Park? Oh my goodness! There's no gotta idea. be a ton. It's, it's not as many as you think. Actually, this isn't the this isn't the actual question. I'll tell you, there are actually 16 that are open okay. to the public. But here's the final question: Is that if you put the length of all of those hiking trails together, how long is it in kilometers? Ooh, I would say maybe a. Uh, Hundred and uh, twenty-one. One hundred twenty-one. One fifty. One fifty. Let's take a look at the answer right here. Oh, 70. seventy. We okay. overguessed ourselves. Just seventy. But the thing is, a lot of people feel like it's a lot longer because it goes up and down That's and left right. You really get lost. Like I think the distance and time kind of just disappears in the mountains, which I think is amazing. Oh, that's, right. that's the you know attraction of the mountains, right? Absolutely. It's a charm. Lose yourself. It's a beautiful place, yeah. and it's a place that you can learn a lot about. And that's all we have for this week's Taiwan by Number. Thanks so much for joining us for this inside look at Taiwan this week. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, leave a comment below. We would love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Liao. And I'm Andrew Ryan. See you next week.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. The people of Kaohsiung in Taiwan just recalled their mayor, and that is a historical first in Taiwan, the recall of a city mayor. And with me here to talk about the rise and fall of one of the KMT's biggest political stars, Han Guoyu, is Lev Nachman, a Fulbright scholar who is studying Taiwan politics in Taiwan. Lev, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, and I heard you went down there to uh, see what was going on during the recall. What did you see? So I went down Friday the night before the election because I wanted to see what kind of activities they were going to be holding the night before. Uh, the organizers, the organization called We Care, uh, who were behind uh, mobilizing people for the recall, had planned a massive citywide march uh, where thousands of people ended up showing uh, to show their support for the recall. Uh, and what was interesting about the rally the night before the election was that it wasn't just young people, but actually uh, generations uh, all over from Kaohsiung turned up to express their discontent and their intention to vote to recall Han. Uh, and even though it was just a rally the night before, it really kind of seemed like the recall vote itself was going to really be historic. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the day of the recall, uh, I spent most of my time walking around the city at uh, checking out voting polls. Uh, and from the entire day, they were busy with people. Uh, even though Saturday it was absolutely downpouring rain uh, in Kaohsiung, but that didn't actually seem to stop people from going out to vote. And then as we now know, uh, the results showed that not only did people vote to recall him, but a lot of people voted to That's recall right. him. That's right, over 40%. He over 40%. He needed 25% for the referendum to be valid. Mm -hmm. and over 939,000 voted um, for him to be recalled, which was more than then voted him to come into office. So yeah. it was an overwhelming, you know, uh, mandate to mm -hmm. recall him. What do you attribute that to? So uh, there's a few different reasons. Uh, the one that a lot of um, media is talking about is Han's connections with China mm. uh, and how uh, kind of the China factor has really turned people against him. And, and that's true to an extent. Uh, but that's not nearly as big of a factor, in my opinion, as Han himself as a politician, uh, how much he has blundered, disappointed, failed to really enact any sort of good governance in Kaohsiung uh, since he became elected. Uh, you know, during the presidential election this last year, he's made so many blunders um, in, in his media appearances, in his speeches, uh, during uh, debates during campaign trails, uh, that there's no shortage of examples to look at how he himself uh, essentially made the KMT uh, look bad, and to for a lot of people from Kaohsiung, made Kaohsiung look bad. Uh, and uh, he himself was not able to actually fulfill any of the promises he made as mayor, uh, he infamously took four months off from being mayor to run for president. Right. That was the, one of the main, you know, issues main grievances that, were, that people right. had. And, and and then, of course, it's no secret that his most of his economic plans were to increase trade with China. Uh, his meeting uh, in Hong Kong with PRC officials last year uh, made this incredibly obvious. And even though Hang Guoyu himself has said that he rejects one country, two systems, supports the Hong Kong protesters. Uh, by him going to 
Hong Kong, meeting with Carrie Lam, meeting with PRC officials, it really sends mixed messages. The other really important factor behind uh, the recall vote, though, and this cannot be overstated, is how much the organization We Care, that's that's the name of the organization, mobilized so much of the city. Uh, They have been campaigning ever since Han Guoyu began to run for president, uh, the city of Kaohsiung to to express their uh, discontent with him. So last year during the presidential election, there was a massive anti-Han rally. We Care was the organization behind that rally. As soon as Han lost the presidency, We Care was the organization that was behind mobilizing voters to vote to recall him. And We Care is actually made up of three different uh, of a couple other different organizations that are all kind of civil society based in Kaohsiung, and then one political party, the Taiwan State Building Party, is also affiliated with We Care. Oh, I thought it was um, also included some former DPP city officials, too. Uh, it it has some DPP members, but mm-hmm. really, if you look at We Care, mm-hmm. it has Taiwan State Building Party on all of their interesting. Uh, um, information. So they it's, were very effective. Very effective. This was, I mean, so the Taiwan State Building Party is a small party in Taiwan. They have one member in the legislative UN. But a lot of their success and a lot of their rise in popularity is because of this Hang recall campaign and because of not just the recall campaign, but the marches against Hang that we that we care organized before. That's interesting. So how would you describe the influence of um, small parties then here in Taiwan? We see them, you know, uh, toppling this major opposition party. Uh, they're becoming incredibly important. If you look at the last election that we just had in Taiwan, uh, small parties brought in over 30% of the votes for the um, for the Bufanchu uh, votes. So, so in Taiwan, you vote three times. You vote for the president, you vote for your legislative local candidate, uh, and then you vote for whichever party you like the most. Uh, and it's this third vote, the party vote, that third parties really have space to grow in. So the DPP got about 30% of the votes. The KMT got about 30% of the votes, but small parties got about 30% of the votes, uh, which shows from from the proportional representation vote, this vote itself, small parties are becoming more and more important. You know, And it's not just the Taiwan State Building Party. You have parties like the New Power Party. Uh, you have Koenja's new party, the uh, Taiwan People's Party, mm-hmm. uh, Taiwan Min Zhongdang. Yeah. Uh, and even though they only have so many seats in the legislative UN, uh, they're able to actually affect the way that politics uh, are happening, not just with the recall vote. If you look in, in kind of just the last few months, a couple of other kind of media attention-grabbing headlines have come from the legislative UN, one being changing the face of Taiwan's passport to remove the name China because mm-hmm. it's causing confusion internationally. Or two, changing the name of China Airlines, mm-hmm. uh, because it's also causing confusion internationally. Both of these policy proposals came from small parties, one from the Taiwan State Building Party and one from the New Power Party. So even though these small parties might not ever become a majority, the voice that they do have is becoming increasingly important. That's interesting. And would you say that they're more pro-Taiwan, pro-local you know, identity. So there's a bit of a, uh, a difference with, there, there, there is variation within these smaller parties. Mm-hmm. So you, parties like the Taiwan State Building Party and the New Power Party will directly say, we are, a, we are pro-Taiwan independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Taiwan People's Party is much more ambiguous about their specific stance. 
Uh, Coenza himself, uh, his entire appeal that he tried to market himself as is a middle ground politician. So uh, trying to pretend that the independence unification issue isn't as important as it really is um, in order to try to say that we're above this, this Liang An Guanxi problem. Uh, and then, of course, later on, we now know that their official stance is a fairly pro-status quo stance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so officially, the TPP stance on independence is uh, Taiwan is already independent as the ROC, which is fairly status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, they're not all the exact same, uh, but by no means are any of the smaller parties pro-China. Hmm. is the big, right. or at least ex- directly pro-China. So it, it is interesting because um, Mayor Han was seen as a very pro-China candidate. So do you think that this is also the people um, saying no to China? It, it is to a degree. It, it really is to a degree. Um, and actually the representative from the Taiwan State Building Party at the uh, victory presser that they held outside the WeCare uh, headquarters said directly, this is not just us saying no to Han Guoyu, this is us saying no to Xi Jinping. Uh, you know, Han Guoyu became a bit of a manifestation of what uh, kind of PRC influence in Taiwan looks like mm-hmm. because he was just very directly willing to endorse a lot of very pro-PRC positions, not just things like the 92 consensus, but trade with China as well. So, um, I mean, it's obvious that, you know, with the election of President Tsai Ing-wen, now we see uh, Han Guoyu being um, defeated in this recall election. Do you think that the overall sentiment in Taiwan is more um, against China? Uh, I think you can look at recent data from the Pew, uh, Pew Research uh, Survey just put out a new report about uh, Taiwan sentiment towards the U.S. and Taiwan sentiment towards China. And unsurprisingly, people have much more positive views of the U.S. than they do of China. But there is still a far larger number of green voters, DPP voters, that have favorable economic uh, perceptions of China, meaning they're willing to work with China for uh, economic goals but have very negative political uh, understandings of of China. Mm. Um, And uh, I think, you know, there's there's a wide... Uh, perception from kind of outside of Taiwan that everyone in Taiwan has that has very very strong anti-China uh, bias, but I think if you look at the data, it's not simply an anti-China thing. You really have to sparse out what anti-China means, mm-hmm. uh, because politically speaking, no one wants the PRC to to hurt any of Taiwan's democratic institutions. But that doesn't mean everyone is completely against any sort of relationship with China. In fact, the survey shows that even green voters themselves are favorable to a fair economic relationship with China. That was Fulbright scholar and UCI PhD candidate Lev Nachman, who was studying Taiwan's small political parties in Taiwan. He gave us his insights into why Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu was recalled last weekend. Next, stay tuned for our news quiz. <laughs> The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International.
Now it's time for our lightning round news quiz, and you can play along at home if you like. I'd like to see if these two guys have been paying attention this week. Yeah, if we don't Are know you? anything, can we do a call out? 50-50, ask the audience. Okay, you guys have 60 seconds to answer as many questions as you can. Ready, go. What travel subsidy does a Taiwan citizen get beginning July? Domestic travel subsidy. Right. Hotels. How much? Uh, 3,000. For one room. 1,000. 700 for a 1, room. 1,000 for one room <laughs> if you're traveling alone. Okay. okay. Okay, on your own. Yeah, we don't get them, so. I mean, I don't, so I don't know. <laughs> what big religious festival began today? Manzu procession. That's right, in a streamlined way, right? It yes. was postponed. Um, how often do Taiwan health officials now hold COVID-19 Once a week. Once a week. Wednesdays. On this oh, wow. year's high school entrance exam essay, what kind of shop would most junior high school students like Coffee to open? Shop. Coffee shop. You're right. Yeah, That's a good one. Um, what percentage of Kaohsiung residents voted in the recall vote on Saturday? 42%. That's right. You guys are doing yeah. great today. <laughs> what entered Taiwan airspace on Tuesday? An American, American aircraft. jet plane. And what else? And a uh, Chinese, Chinese aircraft. One. Yes, Chinese and <laughs> both military planes. Who gets to travel to Turtle Mountain Island for free? Anybody who has the character for turtle in their name. That's right. You guys get man fun. Hundred percent today. Very good. What's our prize, Natalie? Well, you guys get to watch a video about uh, Turtle Island. Awesome. It's like a scene from a movie. The tiny Guishan Island, which is named for its turtle-like shape. In 2000, Taiwan opened the island for tourism. Visitors can take a boat out to see the dolphins or set foot on the island and explore the lush natural scenery. Today, Guishan Island is uninhabited, but that wasn't always the case. Before 1977, there were close to 200 families living there. The government even built a school for the local children. But the authorities relocated Guishan Island's residents to Taiwan proper for safety reasons. In 1994, 100 fishing boats transported the former residents back to their island home so that they could pay tribute to their ancestors. Now, the former residents of Guishan Island are being invited home again, this time to celebrate two decades of tourism. Graduates of Guishan Island's school, as well as military conscripts and medical workers who lived on the island, will gather there on August 1st. Now that Taiwan has lifted coronavirus-related travel restrictions, people are eager to make the trip to see Guishan Island, even before the official anniversary takes place later this summer. Thanks for joining me for Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So, and I'll see you next week. Welcome to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination... The 1970s. In July 1987, just over 30 years ago, Taiwan began its journey towards becoming a multi-party democracy. Close to four decades of martial law had come to an end. Taiwan had done away with autocratic one-party rule, closing a painful chapter of oppression and opening the door to a new era of civil liberties, direct presidential elections, and peaceful transfers of power. But the lifting of martial law was not some abrupt break in Taiwan's history. Instead, it was the result of a long struggle that built momentum, 
until finally, with the help of U.S. pressure, the old system could no longer hold it back. Here to tell us about Taiwan's long path to democracy is Professor Chen Fangming, University Chair Professor at National Jiangzhou University's Graduate Institute of Taiwanese Literature. Professor Chen says that attempts to build an alternative party to the ruling Kuomintang stretch all the way back to 1960. That year, a man called Lei Zhen was jailed for his opposition activities. Among those activities had been his work in founding a new party, the China Democratic Party. The ruling Kuomintang refused to tolerate the party, and this first attempt at an organized opposition ended in failure. Still, Taiwan's intellectuals would continue to feel the need for an opposition party to bring authoritarian rule to heel. A decade later, the ground had become more fertile, and the dream of democracy spread. The 1970s saw the rise of export zones in Taiwan, where manufacturing was done on behalf of foreign companies. Professor Chen calls this a precursor to today's globalization. Working people of the time had many frustrations, wages that were pushed down, an inability to set up unions, and a lack of any freedom of association. Under martial law, these people were under pressure and had no valve to release it. They certainly couldn't speak about their frustrations either. However, thanks to the export zones, wealth began to flow into Taiwan. A Taiwanese middle class began to emerge. Fairly well-off people with educations, but no rights to political expression. The idea of challenging and checking the ruling Kuomintang with an opposition party started to percolate among this new class as well. Around 1974 or 1975, a new word emerged to describe these political nonconformists. Dang Wai, outside the party. Around the same time this word emerges, Chiang Kai-shek died. This was the Kuomintang leader who'd been given Taiwan after World War II, and the same man whose government imposed martial law on Taiwan after losing the Chinese Civil War. The death of such a central figure was a blow to the system he'd put in place, and from 1976 on, the opposition Danwai movement grew. But, Professor Chen says, it wasn't just those thinking about politics who helped push Taiwan's democracy movement forward. He says that around the same time the Danwai movement was growing, a new wave of Taiwan-centered writers were building up what came to be called the Taiwanese Literature Movement. This movement spanned all the major groups that make up Taiwan's population. It brought together Taiwan's indigenous people, ethnic Chinese people with long roots on the island, and even the newest arrivals, those who'd fled to Taiwan with the Kuomintang at the end of the Chinese Civil War. It was a diverse bunch of writers, but they were held together by a shared focus on local Taiwanese themes and experiences. All of this went against the official artistic policy of keeping local expression under wraps. 
These writers also felt an opposition party was essential to resist the powers that be, or at least to bargain with them. Professor Chen says the Dangwai movement wasn't just built by those taking political action and making political demands. It was also built by writers who made artistic demands, demands that they be allowed to write about local subjects. Nineteen seventy-seven was the first pivotal year for Taiwan's democracy movement. That year, independent candidates from outside the Kuomintang made a strong showing in elections to the Taiwan Provincial Council. That year also saw a victory at the local government level. Xu Xinyang, a Dangwai candidate who'd cut ties with the ruling party, won the leadership of Taoyuan County. His victory was especially significant because of an irregularity during the voting process. On the day of voting, an attempt to rig the election was uncovered in the local city of Zhongli. Word of the vote rigging got out, and before long, an angry crowd had surrounded and burned down a police station. The angry crowd was suppressed, but the attempt to fix the election results failed. Xu Xinyang was declared the contest's rightful winner. After the Zhongli incident, as it came to be known, supporters of democracy felt emboldened. Ordinary people had stood up to the powers that be and had gotten results. The optimism of 1977 was misplaced. In a few years, Xu Xinyang would be living in exile. Still, Taiwanese people look back on the Zhongli incident of 1977 as a watershed moment. Human Rights Day falls on December 10th each year, and on December 10th, 1979, a number of leading opposition figures gathered to mark the day and call for democracy in the southern city of Kaohsiung. The event was broken up, and a number of people arrested. Among them were eight prominent pro-democracy leaders, the so-called Kaohsiung Eight. Their trial in 1980 was conducted by a military rather than a civilian court. There was something unusual about the proceedings. Every word was transcribed and printed for the public to read. This kind of transparency had been unheard of, and it blew away any official excuses that the Kaohsiung Eight had been mere troublemakers. Professor Chen sees the hand of Washington in the openness surrounding the case with what he believes was U.S. pressure leading the Kuomintang to relent and make the transcripts public. The 1979 protest became known as the Kaohsiung Incident, and the military tribunal that followed was an electrifying moment. Through reading the trial transcripts, 
in awareness and understanding of democratic thought spread through the public. Taiwan's democratic movement matured. Without this maturity, Professor Chen says, the movement could never have succeeded. Of course, the arrest of the Kaohsiung Eight was a big blow. The release of their trial transcripts wasn't enough to save them from prison. But at the same time, their arrests weren't enough to put a lid on the Dangwai movement either. As we'll hear next week, when Professor Chen joins us again, the 1980s brought a loosening of control and a flowering of social movements that would make the push for democracy too much to contain. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. While most of the people of Taiwan were focused on a noisy recalling Kaohsiung last weekend, there was another group of people on a mountain in Taipei celebrating the silence. Last Friday on World Environment Day, Quiet Parks International designated Yamishan National Park, which is right here in Taipei's backyard, as the world's first urban quiet park. So what's so great about silence and quiet? I'm going to let my friend Matt Nicholson from Quiet Parks International explain it to you himself. Natural quiet, or the ability to listen to nature without noise pollution, is becoming harder and harder. The vast majority of people living in the world today are exposed to unhealthy quantities of noise pollution. There are very, very few places left on planet Earth where you can listen to just the sounds of nature for more than 15 minutes at a time. And those places are vanishing very quickly. Quiet Parks International is the first and only organization committed to the preservation of quiet for the benefit of all living beings. Being able to listen to nature without the impacts of noise pollution connects us to the world as it was. Natural quiet is a resource that's really important for all humans, but also for wildlife. It's really important that wildlife have acoustically pristine environments that they can communicate in. Our hope is that we can create a few places in every country that people can go to experience natural quiet. We hope to not only help the local communities preserve these places and to help mitigate sources of noise pollution, but also to draw tourism to these areas to experience the quiet. Quiet is a resource, and if we don't do something to protect it now, it'll be much harder in the future to regain what we've lost. Radio Taiwan International. 
any day, anytime at english.rti.org.tw. Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Thank you.